Welcome back to Comic Book Historians. I'm Alex Grand with a quick prologue before we get started. Our guest host is Bill Field, my dear friend. Back in 2017, Bill first came up to me and said, hey, what do you think about doing a podcast or something? And I never really thought about it. And he came up with this idea of us kind of just getting together, talking about comics. And so we first started with something that he was putting together called Comics Code Authorities. And it was fun. You know, he invited me and Jim along to do that. And then there are some technical issues and it just became kind of difficult. So then I uh, decided uh, I don't want to miss out on this. And I think it might be a fun way to do it. And so I said, well, I'm just going to do the hard work and just construct one and then we'll just do it. And that was kind of the start of the Comic Book Historians podcast. And we all kind of got together and had some fun. Those initial episodes were different. We based it on the format that I set up in the Comic Book Historians group to have a year with a post. We had a year with an episode. And that was the first milestone. The second milestone, which is a direct influence of Bill, of which I'm grateful he came up with the idea of actually interviewing people. He said, hey, you know, we should interview this letter, Tom Morzachowski. That was Bill's idea. I didn't, you know, I didn't really think about that before that. And then he approached Tom and, and got him on the show. Us three, we all had a great time interviewing Tom Green behind the gills, but it was a really fun experience. And that was a direct influence of Bill, you know, my dear friend. And then the third thing was... Um, we were just walking around convention at San Diego Comic-Con. He's like, hey, we should just go around and just start interviewing people. It'll be fun. And I was like, okay, you know, and he just kind of taught me how fun, you know, he took me under his wing in a lot of ways. You know, he's been in fandom longer than me. And he just kind of showed me the ropes, you know, and we interviewed people with, with the microphone. It was like we were kids just having fun. And Neil Adams was really kind enough to grant us a, a really long, nice interview. And we turned that into a book that we're really proud of and edited by my very dear friend and colleague, N. Scott Robinson, PhD, the best editor that Bill and I have individually or collectively ever worked with. We both wrote pieces for it. And Bill's piece is so beautiful. And really takes you back to the 70s when you read it. It's just so well done. I'm really uh, proud and excited to have him back in this uh, reunion podcast episode. He is here to interview me and uh, Josh Berman on our new graphic novel, Hashman. Bill, I pass the uh, the microphone, the uh, Viagra and the nasal spray over to you, Bill. What about the baton? The baton, <laughs> and yeah, the and the gavel. And the gavel. Okay, okay. <laughs> so, you know, this is so beautiful to me because... You know, Alex and I have been friends for almost 10 years now. And, you know, I just, I don't know. I had this idea that maybe our voices would matter. Of course, I'm I'm kind of anti-tech in some ways. I'm pro-tech in a lot of ways, too, as an animator. But I really have to tell you, when Alex, after I had recorded uh, three shows uh, that we did at San Diego... And um, uh, and our friend, good friend Matt Rizzotto was on Rizzuto. I'm sorry, Rizzotto. I'm hungry. Matt Rizzuto did the shows with us. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah, for sure. They were fun. And we had people come in and it was just it seemed very symbiotic between the three of us. And we turned that into something that lasted a couple years. And you've been doing some really exciting things in TV production film festivals. I always Thank I you. always get really excited whenever you send me links to some of your, your new <laughs> movies you make. And and it's just so, so and much. I'm so impressed with the production of it. And, uh, you know, a lot of people don't know this, at least on the, in the comic circles, but you're a great actor and production person and director and you're a man of many skills. So I really appreciate you interviewing us on Hashman. You know, it's about the life of Joey Berkowitz and his pathway through life in the world of Vice. Ask us, tell us, lead the way. Thank you so much. Okay, I'm going to tell you what struck me first was the artwork is phenomenal. You got an artist that actually made the story the way I believe both of you guys wanted to be told. Right. And that that's, you know, that's not an easy feat. But once you get that down, then everything else is kind of gravy because he's going to depict it how you're saying now the story I'm going to tell you, it's it's uh, it's such a multi-dimensional story, and that's what I loved about. It. Now, of course, I have to tell everybody I've known Josh for gosh, 
believe it or not, almost four years. And um, I met Josh at San Diego Con through Alex, and we became fast friends, I'd like to say. I have very few friends, and you're on that short list. And I remember we had, like, the first night we met each other, we partied until, like, 4 a.m. That's always a good sign. And we had so much fun. Yeah, I think that was the 2019 Comic-Con, right? That was right before hell broke loose right. the next year. Seems so long ago, my God. It's like a lifetime. I remember hearing you talk about your story about your dad. I was mesmerized. Anyone to me that tries to push forward the legalization of marijuana, which I think is ridiculous in the first place, I tip my hat to them. And anything that moves things forward without being harmful. And I think your dad was a pioneer. You're a pioneer in a lot of ways with the things that you've grown from that. Your story is beautiful. But it also portrays the yin and yang we have with our fathers. And I had a great dad. Alex has a great dad. But we also realize they have these issues and these things that need to be worked out. This must have been such a cathartic medium for you to work in because you probably worked out a lot of your issues pro and con that you had and i'm curious i i would like to start off with that how how did that play a part in producing such a wonderful graphic novel you know it's funny when you're raised by a therapist therapy doesn't really work on you you can go, we can go deeper into that. And there's probably a bunch of shrinks that disagree with me, but I do, I disagree with them and I've tried it. It certainly was a process that I believed would be more helpful than therapy right? to try to actually draw the Testament out, put some of that energy, take some of that energy from the dark and put it into the light and try to make, make something great happen and, and maybe teach a few people something and who knows from that that standpoint like it it absolutely was a process that even before i began it not this but even like this whole idea of of telling elements of this my feeling was like if it helps me get through some of the issues that come from this life then that's good enough for me i was fortunate enough that my best friend in the world just happens to also know how to make graphic novels or was was on that path that's Alex Grant. We've been that type since college, you know, and our kids are best friends, you know, the whole nine, even though I'm in Seattle. It just was one of these moments when we were all in Mexico together uh, on a family trip, like a multi-family trip, visiting my dad who's down there. Alex, his whole family, me and my whole family. The weird energy, like weird things are happening and I can tell that shit's about to explode. Alex is kind of in the corner talking to my dad like having this really serious one-on-one conversation, which is something that they just do when they get around each other. Similar to how I met his father. When I'm around his father, he and I just kind of like talk to each other a bunch. It's, we, have, we have that kind of cross connection. That's beautiful. But this time around, I could tell he was getting into his mode, deep analysis, next layer question mode, which I know is good as anybody. The interview lasted, what, four days? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Because Joey Berkowitz, the person that we're representing in this story, is really based on Josh's father. And it's uh, it's based on interviews with him, but also other people that were involved, as well as newspaper clippings and legal documents that we were able to recover and go through before we really went at it. Uh, we didn't want to just take one source, but that one source was important because Josh knows his dad and the world of vice that he lived in as he grew up with it. You know, when I met Josh as my best friend from college, you know, I didn't know that stuff, but I knew him as his dad, as my friend's dad. And so finally, with this one trip, I just looked at it and I'm like, where were you born? Okay, what happened next? Like, it, it turned into like a comic book historian's interview episode. <laughs> I'm literally going A to Z, like biographical interview style. And then just kind of digging in and, and started to question it and ask questions. And then I think Josh probably planned in a way to finding a medium to tell the story in. I started just writing notes after the four days, and I just kind of saw the damage. 
Because look, he's a victim of child abuse. His dad was. And then how that factored into a distrust of the system. Right. And how that then factored into the world of vice and almost being on the run from a domestic setting because the domestic setting was so damaging that it was this fast paced life and everything was kind of intense, risky. The mobsters, the Gambino family in New York, the late 60s, kind of the hippie movement of the anarchy stuff and getting involved in all those things, money laundering and Asia and all these interesting sequences. And, and what's interesting is how they all happen in different decades. And there's like a Miami Vice kind of era of it. And there is like a Serpico era of this. And there's almost like a Forrest Gumpian aspect of going from one decade to the next and running into the craziest people like Billy Crystal as a childhood friend in Long Island and dating Maria Schneider from Last Tango in Paris, that weird fling there and selling hash to this like New York elite urban crowd. Like, you know, Tom Wolf was part of this culture. The story just kind of begged to be told. So we just kind of crash coursed it. And we put together a script and yeah, the artist, you know, I think the idea what we wanted was a fabulous furry freak brothers type of art to get to that underground stuff, but also make it somewhat mainstream enough so that everyone would like it. And then the palette that he chose was just, that's what brought it over the top because there was this kind of Indian spiritual meditation part, which is what you yeah. totally don't expect to be a story like this. Yeah. Right. We had to make that important because that's the duality. Right. You know, that's the Tupacian nature of him. Like everyone wants a character that's like good and bad. That's more interesting. And he really was that. Like he really was a Buddhist. He's really all of the above, you know, and, and believes wholeheartedly in all of it. And so an artist that could actually capture that, he was great. Well, you know, we asked for a million changes, a million, and he did them all. I mean, it was just, it was phenomenal. Yeah, he was very professional about the whole thing. And he also wanted it to be good because it was such an unusual, wild story. You know, he does children's books. Wow. I didn't realize that. I kept thinking I was seeing Spain Rodriguez's work from the early 70s. But the overriding color in this graphic novel happens to be green. It works so well, and the color and the texture, it works so well with the graphics, so well with your narratives. This is something more than special. I'm not even going out on a limb here. This is kind of the weed version of Mouse. I'm not overshooting it here. This is an important story because of the way the country has gone, things have happened in the last few years. This story couldn't come out at a better time. And not only that, but I can see so many media potentials for this. TV series, movie, you name it. To me, it's beautiful because you guys have been able to endure this, Josh. You and your dad. Yeah, we we, we kept it intentionally beautified. Like the Forrest Gump idea, that was something that me and Alex were really like from the beginning. Like we want him to feel like he's backpedaling through things. Like he's stuck through almost like in a fun like that was a a big part of it obviously when you when you get into the weeds of any of these stories they're all very difficult and ugly and hard you know and that was honestly we want to save that for the next type of medium that was the choice we took because we're like we're trying to tell this much this huge story we have this much space like we're gonna have to roll we look forward to hopefully telling it in deeper depth or elements of it in in deeper depth and through another medium But for this medium, that was hard. Initially, we were worried that we spent too much time like on his childhood. And then it turned out that ended up being a really good choice. Yeah. Yeah. Because it explained a lot of his behavior. We're jumping right in with like child abuse in a graphic novel, which isn't something you might expect to see. I don't know. I don't read as many as you guys do, but a little different tone, you know? And then it kind of rolls from there. And Dr. Alex, I mean, I followed his lead on this clearly because he had just read a million of these and I've read like five from my standpoint, it was also the art style. Mm-hmm. Like that's why we shot for that style. Someone who can kind of give us like an approach that felt like it was wide, like a macro approach versus like, you know, and I learned a lot in this process, other types of art styles, you shoot for uh, more difficult stories. Those, those were all the different variables that we played with. Bill, we've read a lot of comics in our day. We understand how many panels do you really need to tell something, to convey something? Right. You know, there was like three artists that we tested out. Charbok was so good. He was able to relay in three panels what it took everyone else seven panels to do. And the expressions they had. Oh, yeah. Within one panel. So you didn't have to like 
laid out over seven panels, you know? Oh, no, exactly. And and you were able to compress that in such a way that you could tell a broader story in a shorter amount of pages. Yeah, which is what we did. We need to give a total formal shout out to your artist and his name and what he's done. Charbak Deepta, C-H-A-R-B-A-K, last name Deepta. He's done a lot of children's books. You can look him up on Amazon. He's done a lot of things. He's actually very proud of Hashman because it's the first American award he had. Wow. Isn't that phenomenal? That's great. Certainly deserved a Literary Titan Award that we received. And then we're a finalist in the SPR awards now he's gotten awards in india where he's at we wanted that indian element because of the buddhism aspect of the main character that in some way it doesn't excuse a lot of the vice that he was a part of but it certainly adds an extra dimension of the way he perceived the world around him and the way we get to perceive the story and be able to actually have a little bit of that aspect as an undertone. It, it doesn't beat you over the head with it. Oh, not at all. It's part of the tapestry in that open world experience we're trying to make with this. I had read the whole thing and I hadn't looked to the art credits because the art just drew me in immediately. And when I found out he's an India-based artist, it really amazed me because he hit all these crescendos as far as American culture. This looks like something that would have been heavy metal. Yeah, it it totally does. It doesn't really look underground to me because it's so pronounced and so well done. Uh, The colors are fantastic. Everything you guys did on this, I realized it was very thought out and it was very meticulous. You guys really tried to pair up the right talent with the story. Honestly, Alex, you guys hit a home run. Oh, thanks. That's so nice. Hit me in the heart. So you see all of the hardship that Josh's dad brought because of his relentless vision. I don't know. It made me feel good at the end of it, but I also felt sad for, for Josh. I don't mind. I don't mind pity. Hey, I'll take it. (laughs) I know this had to be one of the hardest things you've ever done in your life. How did you deal with that? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Have you ever wondered what the band ACDC has to do with the missing town of Dublin, Wisconsin? Or who gets to decide what music plays at the end of the world? Or whether or not the largest unsolved art heist in history was actually a cover for a different crime? Maybe you haven't wondered about these things, but that's okay. On 31, we dive into strange, true, but often lesser-known stories and the interesting theories that surround them. From space to sports, lost media to internet lore, 31 has something for everyone. Find 31 on your favorite podcast platform and dive into the why behind the weird with me, Quinn Lovecraft. 31, the why behind the weird. COVID helped. It was like a perfect little timing. This is sort of like our one of our COVID projects. Look, there's a lot that happened during the legalization part that we almost purposefully left out because it it just, we couldn't get it in there. Since all of those events have occurred, it's like, I I remember growing up and looking at my dad when he would do crazy shit and knowing that he was completely different. And almost like the older I got, the more I knew like, this guy's like a legend, like the way that he was perceived in Seattle, just sort of like the way that he was looked at. And then legalization happened. And then he became the, the biggest authorizing doc. And at that point I was like, well, I really have no choice but to try to find a way to capture this because this story is too unique. Like this is the true story of legalization. Now it doesn't start there though. It starts all the way back. And so that's where Alex came in. I couldn't have really told that other part without him. I could have told the last half maybe, but I couldn't have told the history component because i knew it in real time yeah and i also knew it like this happened at one point in this and then alex has the type of mind where he's able to weave it all like okay no no, no. i think like, this is the block man like here it is yeah and then i would go through and be like okay but in this story i think it's a little you know then i can kind of go into the story and say no I, i've heard him tell this eight times like here's all the variations let's find something you know so that was our process Um, We're not going to say any real names, but Gary Friedman, the guy that was arrested by the FBI, you know, in the money laundering in the 80s. Josh actually interviewed 
that guy. I interviewed his sister because she's one of my clients at work, which was a complete random thing. And she told me her version of events. We had to weave that stuff. There are certain things about the 1972 bust and being on the in the newspapers, Jewish mafia busted, whatever. Finding that was just great and seeing the mug shots of his partner. So we were able to confirm Mm-hmm. quite a bit, or at least make sure it was consistent with the way other sources had it. There are a couple things we couldn't quite verify. We did pull his 2000 page record out of the Bronx house of detention. I had yeah, to got that. into yep. New York and get that. And that was extremely difficult. There, there were some things like we could for sure, difficult things, but there are just a couple like, well, you know, Maria Schneider affair. Did that happen? I don't know. I don't know if it happened. Told that story a hundred times. But every time he tell, it's like the same exact thing. And so I believe it. And it's a great story. I mean, you can't not tell that story because it is. <laughs> and that little one liner when he comes out of Last Tango in Paris with her at the premiere. And he's like, I didn't know Stick of Butter could do that. You know, <laughs> like, I don't know. There are just certain things that you just have to have that because it's just too great. Right. We kind of yin yang the project. We're different, but we were very much aligned in a creative sense. So we we're able to bring a lot to this in a way that it was a real synergy. It was a real fun and fulfilling, you know, creative synergy. And and I love the history aspect, the comic aspect. Josh, of course, knows much more about the Vice world than I do. And so does his dad. Josh had a yin and yang letter to his dad in this. And my perspective, or at least the primary emotion was, it was a love letter from me to them. But his dad was a very meaningful source because in his role as a psychologist, you know, he analyzed me a lot and he was like, bro, you're messed up. I love it. (laughs) A lot of times I would have weird milestones in my life. I'd run to him and ask him questions. And there's something about his voice I find soothing. Josh, has almost a Hannibal Lecter view of his dad's voice. He has a nice voice. It's a very soothing, and I I look at him in a very different way. I wouldn't trade that for anything. I never knew any of this growing up at all. He hid it completely. Yeah. Like, the only thing I knew was I would look in his closet. He would have a bunch of silk suits from China. Like, he would always go to China. He'd always go to Hong Kong when I was a kid. He would always go to Thailand. But that's all I knew. I graduate college, still, no knowledge. Gary, the character who played Gary, the real character is out of jail he's in florida down and out he's strung out and so my dad moves him up here to help him out on a a mini storage facility that he owned outside of seattle gary and i and my dad all went to a mariners game one night uh sat in the box and he told every single story to me that night gary with my dad wow just at the you know over a baseball game literally and he's sober at that point, you know, 100%, you know, he's clean. Right. But he was just like, couldn't, wouldn't stop talking. Just everything. And slowly after that, like my dad thought out and then it got to the point where he wouldn't stop talking. He held it because he didn't want me to have anything to do with any of that. And I'll give him credit for that. Like he held it. That's beautiful. Right. Yeah. And then my life actually made sense after I learned that. Of course. Like something was desperately missing. And then it was like, okay, now I understand so much. Now I understand me. You know, I didn't feel like I was a bad guy anymore for some of the choices I made, knowing where I'd come from. Like, it all became a lot more clear, so. Well, you needed that clarity, and and you got that. Honestly, I think that comes through with the story. I mean, of course, you're not really a part of the story except for being a minor character, but, of course, you are a major character because you're the son of the guy that you're talking about. And I don't know what I would have done different in your position. I totally think everything you've done so far in the media presence now, I feel like you've done everything not against your dad, but it's trying to understand and trying to process your dad. And that's part of what this whole book is about. Right. You're definitely not too far off. We left out our issues on purpose. And that was a choice that we made. We're, we're going to get to that later uh, because it's like its own world. Just that relationship is very unique. So we purposefully just kind of like danced over it. The reality of it, it's like any father-son relationship. It's highly complicated. Ours was also under a very public sort of window because when we were building that 40 stuff, I mean, we got really, really well known. And so everything is in the public eye and it just gets really, really, really toxic and wild. 
And so rather than kind of getting too deep into how that played out, we just showed it from his perspective. That's wonderful. He's the type of guy that at any time growing up, he had two or three lawsuits going on. He had shit flying. Even when he was out of the game and just an entrepreneur, his sickness didn't go anywhere. Like he was a serial entrepreneur. He was involved in five businesses at once. He was, you know, chasing people for his money. It was just the same shit, just but in like the legal space, restaurant business, car washes, uh, mini storages, all sorts of real estate, little things up, down, up, down, up, down, you know, classic. It's in the addictive style, not like he was crushing every deal. That's not how that works. The addictive serial entrepreneur, it's like, a they're like a gambler. That was the version of him I knew was this kind of like, yo, he's a massive entity. But then when I kind of understood where he came from and then our opportunity to step in that critical time in 2010 and play a significant role with legalization, it was cool because finally all that energy that he had was able to go thrust into one place. And when it did, and when he and I actually touched together, because at the same time, I was running like a pretty big nightlife company. We were pretty heavy. That's how we got so much attention so fast. And that 11 or 12 months where the three of us worked together was the probably the best time of my life, maybe, or definitely the best time of my business life. There was this beauty when we all came together, but it was like, there was absolutely no way it was going to last. Can that kind of energy ultimately explodes? I've run an indie little cult magazine before. I've published before. I've done guerrilla marketing, visual. My mom's an artist, art teacher. So like that world is is really where I feel comfortable. So I always kind of move towards that. And so this style of expressing, even though I'm not like a comic book guy, you know, besides like when I was a kid, I had my time. Right. I know more than the average because of who my best friend is. But like, that's not my my medium. Print is my medium. A hundred percent. I love print. I do too. Yeah, I just love physical things and I love leave behind. So that where I was like, oh, let's do this. Like, I know. Storytelling, sure. And I learned a lot in this future, you know, when Alex and I talk about doing projects, it's always events. Like it's like a tight window of time, you know, because like that gives you enough. There's so much. We had to leave so much out of this. Great to hear that it came across. But the one thing that grounded it amidst the tornado of, of events and the almost like a Forrest Gump aspect from A to Z was the child abuse and how it informed his decisions in the world around him while also displaying uh, these different stages of vice and different stages of decades. It'll definitely get people curious and want to know more about a lot of the things that we portray, but it's all through a lens of abuse. In turn, maybe even abusing the world back and keeping it at that human level. And I think if you can keep it human, I think that's what makes for a successful story, even for a biography. You just have to keep it human, but also simple enough so that everyone can understand what you're trying to do. So I think it was more the abuse angle that tightens it for us in a sense. You know, like the movie Blow with Johnny Depp, right? Where he's like a kid and then into the 60s and 70s and 80s, you know, in the world of cocaine. This is that, you know, in the world of passion and marijuana. But the fear of abandonment, the fear of being hurt, the fear of feeling safe in a domestic environment and it betrays you by dealing with it without the right guidance. You know, you become in a way a bit of a monster yourself a little bit. And it was so important to me as a reader to uh, feel the evolution of Josh's dad and understand where the, all of the story really comes from. And you guys portrayed it so realistically and so well. I think that's what's really going to rivet people to want to buy it and want to read it. Because I think everybody has something inside of them that this will relate to. Best graphic novel I've read in five years, easily. Thank you. Wow, that's great. That's awesome. You know what? Alex knows this. I don't blow smoke up people's skirts. Honestly, I loved it. It's the best thing that Alex has published. And I say that because he's also published our book. I don't know. It hit me so hard. I had such a close relationship with my dad. And I had a dad. His dad died when he was nine. Believe it or not, I know you and your dad have had issues, and that's understandable. My dad and I did too. But I felt the love for your dad in this. But I also felt disappointment and, and sadness. The way you were able to portray all of that into one vehicle, honestly, that's why I think it's a phenomenal graphic novel. And no, that's so great. 
Well, I didn't want to drool on myself too much tonight, but I love this graphic novel and the fact that you wanted me to come and host this and rekindle the old juices of the Comic Book Historian podcast. It's made me so proud that we're able to do this. You know, maybe people will like, I got to get that. Honestly, tell your friends, because this is a story that impacted so many people anyone who smoked weed or needed cbd or anything like that they owe something to josh's dad dad is kind of like that guy he's one of the people that flooded the demand so much i think it just had to be dealt with in some form from the legal people that whole scene when uh he becomes a bit of an outlaw again and starts really pushing the rules on the medical marijuana and authorizing like six people at once and doing it in a boat, you know, and at a back of a holiday inn and all this stuff <laughs> and really going beyond what the laws were allowing, but almost flooding it so much that they just had to deal with it in some way. This started because he was in Mexico, you know, he reached a deal with the IRS to finally pay back taxes. But at the time he was in Mexico, but it's because they can't really get to him out there. You know, that's why he wasn't visiting us. We were visiting him. It, it was just interesting also for me, because, you know, this isn't my main world. It's definitely my homeboy's world and his dad's world. And uh, so it was definitely fascinating, but also historical and also conveying it as comic book. It, it's a different set of skills, making comics and trying to get the story told. It's, it's valuable to try. I, I recommend everybody try to do that, really get into the groove of how do you structure panels? How do you structure captions? How do you structure what you want to tell and how you transition that to the next page? I recommend everybody try that. And then at the end of it, you know, play with dialogue and edit it, re-edit the dialogue. You know, Josh and I just advanced forward just in that process of just being storytellers. You know, I hope that shows. I'm so glad that you were receptive to that, uh, Bill. And let me ask you this, Bill, just from all the stuff you've read, you've watched a lot of movies. Right. You've read a lot of comics, graphic novels, comic strips. I mean, you've read all sorts of visual media. You've listened to a lot of music. When you read this, did you feel like the guy we were portraying was like a full-blooded person that you got to know? Yeah. My soundtrack for this, if I had to pick one song, Comfortably Numb by Pink Floyd, mm -hmm. would be my soundtrack to this because it's almost like Josh's dad became part of the scenery so much and part of the mechanism so much that he forgot who he was. I feel like comfortably numb is something we all put ourselves in when things are so amazing and so overwhelming at the same time that we can't process. Right. And so right. we typically become comfortably numb. I was sympathetic to your dad. Sometimes the people that act like the biggest badasses are the guys that really just need a hug. I don't mean I, I wanted to hug your dad after this. I probably <laughs> would. I'm a hugger. Yeah. And I felt so sorry for your dad. I felt your compassion for him. And I felt like you painted a picture of a guy who just needed a freaking hug. I like this thing about forgetting who he is. What do you say about all that, Josh? You're right. In the core aspect of my father is he's a loving, lovable guy who just kind of wants to have fun. That's really kind of fundamentally who he is. Now, it's surrounded like everyone else in a bunch of layers and anxieties and, you know, torment and all these kind of things. PTSD. Yeah, and all the above. Yeah. It's right down to it. Like, he likes to smile. He likes to laugh. He likes to be around. He likes to be the center of the party telling the loudest joke like that's his nature that man i do love that man i cherish you know that man taught me so much you know so from that side of, of me that's where the sympathy comes from for me there is this vibrant individual who's truly like a spark of energy like anything he rolls into explodes i've learned a lot from him. rolling into things with authority and trying to really make them happen like because of the torment and the and the, the negative energy, the good chases the bad, and the bad chases the good, and it's all connected. So as much of that vibrancy, it, there's that darkness to it where you catch him on the wrong day. I mean, he's probably like the worst person to be around ever. Like the flip side is is difficult. Consequences. And without consequences, like... Consequences! What we didn't want to do is like, we wanted to clearly tell this through his voice. 
like not get into oh well there's this other there's these nuanced sides to it like no this is like how one man perceived his adventure with a little bit of layering on top of that from us the truth of how we got legalized in washington is massively interesting the obama administration that ran the legalization campaign in washington through proxy and there's a whole political thriller there and we talked about it for hours i mean 10, 15, 20 hours, like debated, like, how do we touch this material? Because like, this is where it gets really interesting. And what we decide is like, we're just going to come back to it. If we could find the time and we have the will, we'll come back to it because it's too much. Like he really was breaking bad. He really did find out he had prostate cancer. He already has this morbid outlook. And so, especially then, and so he really thought he was going to die. And so authorizing like in that nature was kind of part of his like, well, if this is it, this is it. On a war path to try to lose his license. You know, he was like, I'm just going to try to like see if they come and get it. And I'm going to do everything I can to try to keep it. Being around that was shocking. Even my partner who was as weathered and been through more than anything that any of us could imagine was looking at my dad like, yo, your dad is fucking out of, out of his mind. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, what the fuck to do about this? And that's where flooding the system comes because he thought he was going to die. So he just flooded the, the whole system with it. It took us about 18 months to do what it took California 18 years to do. Like get to that level of rapid growth. So it was almost like watching something grow at this exponential rate where they were like, we got to cap that shit. Right. Like that fucking out of control. Like, and that's where they came in. You know, there's a whole story behind that. And, you know, like, but, you know, Colorado was considered a runaway state and they wanted with no ATF federal intervention at all. And they needed Washington. They couldn't have that happen there. So they came in with the ATF and did it right. But that was because of this crazy shit we were doing. Like we kind of like microwaved it. It takes a little bit of insanity to do that. He's a weapon. He's a tool. It's meant to be used. Right. All of us play a role like that. You know, and so for me, it's like, put your feelings aside, put any emotional shit aside, get this out there. The truth needs to come to light and how everything kind of went to pass and telling the backstory of like the core character of the beginning of this was just something that we had to do. And then kind of see it through. Okay, now we're going to go in and investigate some of these things a little bit more deeply. That's sort of the thought process. It really played out well. And the funny thing is, is that you guys were state number two, correct? No. So Colorado and Washington actually legalized the same night. Oh, okay. I didn't realize. But Colorado is always acknowledged as the first state. Right. It's very confusing because the reason why people think that is because so Colorado had a very simple law. Their law was basically take all the medical shops and turn make them recreational overnight. And people can just walk in there without an authorization to buy weed. They didn't go through the seed to sale thing. In Washington, what they do is they shut down the entire medical system, put everyone out of business, and then relaunched a recreational system on top of that. Oh, my God. So it took longer. That's where people are like, well, Colorado, it's record. It was we can go buy weed overnight. And Washington took two and a half years. Now, that same system then got replicated in Oregon, California. It's the exact same system that they're using in New York. It's the same system. It's the proxy system they're using in Nevada. It's the same system where they basically take the liquor board, put cannabis under the liquor board, and therefore cannabis is now part of the ATF. Because liquor board are ATF agents. Right. Obama's drug czar at that time was Gil Karaleski, who was the ex-chief of police in Seattle. His drug czar was back-channeling everything to the ACLU, and to make sure that everything got written. And then they brought in the big money immediately and just got it done. You know, so it was like, as soon as that law got presented to us, everyone knew it was passing. It was like, you saw the names that were behind it. You're like, it's amazing. Passive. It all passed the same night, November 3rd, 2012, Colorado and Washington. Uh, same night as gay marriage passed. You kind of get the idea that Washington became the replication for the entire nation. Colorado never happened again. To this day, and I mean, I got this information straight from the top. So, like, to this day, Colorado was seen as a massive, massive failure of drug policy by the Obama administration, that they allowed that to happen. Because they can't walk into Colorado and shut it down with the ATF at all. No, no, of course not. For Colorado's sake, great work. Right. Kudos. I, I wish we had Colorado's system, quite honestly. What it did to Washington was so bad that they made sure that it never went down like that in another state again. The type of chaos, the destruction that it did to small businesses. We went from having a system that was probably 50% minority to like 2% once they flipped it to recreational. It totally whitewashed it. So you see like in New York now, they're building systems to make sure like 
never allow that to happen again. So telling that story is it's shocking what went down. It was like overnight, we went from being sort of like everyone loved medical marijuana in the media here, we're a very liberal place. Obviously, Seattle, you know, uh Seattle Times is calling us on the regular. We have a massively huge independent newspaper called The Stranger out here. We were on speed dial. A couple weeks later, all of us are enemies. They went from writing great stories about us to terrible stories about us totally vilifying you vilifying us overnight in order to like the idea was like recreational will push out medical and then what they learned later it was all the same people and so in every other state you know like in california they just did an evolution from medical to recreational right because you're not going to come in with a whole new set of people like that was just the stupidest but what was great is that like we were part of that process we were kind of fundamental in the in the beginning of that and being able to go through that with him that almost made up for all the bullshit alone like just being able to be on the front lines with him and doing something that we'll remember forever you know like no matter what happened after that it doesn't matter you're fighting together and and that brings people together more than probably anything right and i salute you for that because i think that's beautiful another like war story between a father and son i mean how many of these have we told like we just didn't even really necessarily want to get into that here, even though there's clearly like this gap where a war occurred, if you read the book. Fill in the blanks for us a little bit on that, if you can. So in reality, you know, my dad is like, we were, when we started 40, we had no money. Me and my partner, we really had to make that clear. This was the housing crisis. This was 08. Economy was completely destroyed. All of us were living in foreclosed houses. All three of us, my dad too. Even though he has money, he was just taking advantage of the free opportunity to <laughs> pay mortgage. He had been successful what he'd done. I had been successful, but now we were kind of strung out. And so he was our investor and our partner. And so he used that. He leveraged that against us the whole time and strung every dollar out of the business. And then we were spending all our money to grow the business, making almost nothing. And so that was just a huge negotiation like hit point. We finally got to this part where we all agreed to be one third partners. And we also wanted to help him retire because he was like getting more lucid. You know, remember he's on radiation treatment. He's working 14 hour days. So he doesn't want to bring anyone else and he wants to make, take every dollar for himself. You know, like he's getting all more and more like eating edibles, giving edibles, smoking weed and like during while he's authorizing people every time we're like, okay, well, we're getting closer and closer to getting shut down. So we finally got to a point where we were going to do thirds and just he can kind of fall back. And we had these other doctors who wanted to come see the patients. And he shook on that and agreed and then basically did everything he could to make sure that that never occurred. And it was at a financial point for us where we couldn't not go move forward and see patients or we would be tipped over. It went down, not the way he planned. To him, I betrayed him, you know? Yeah. To me, my dad is that you just have to play like that. Like, he will fuck you. Like, you have to. This isn't a situation where it's a classic father-son business. This is like, I've been in four businesses with my dad. They all ended in fires, chaotic firestorms, where he ran back in and threw everybody out, everything back. Because that's, you know, that's that type of loan shark uh, investor he was, right? Where he had a whip. But he ran into my partner, who was truly not going to go for any of that shit. It was just like a brick wall. So ironically, this is so much like the PSAs of the early 80s, where I learned it from you, Dad. I learned it from you. I mean, <laughs> so in true. more ways than one. <laughs> oh, yeah. I remember that commercial. I know. I learned it from watching you. Yeah. yeah. You know. I don't mean anything negative towards no, it's you, true. but I'm saying you're learning from the master kind of who happens to be your dad. And he beat me out so many times in these little like art of war, uh, chess match business moments. There's a lot of reasons why. And I was a decent biz guy, but like I wasn't ready for the type of psychological warfare that he plays because he's like being a shrink. Then I really didn't understand all the psychological patches he had planted in my brain until later. <laughs> it's like season nine of Picard where they put that Borg implant in and then it activates. Then you just like press a button. It activates later, dude. <laughs> it was traumatic for me. That war was, I'd been a promoter for 10 years in the rap game. Like it wasn't like I was working at Microsoft. Like I was used to being at war, being in the middle of really fucked up situations. Right. But so it wasn't like I was like soft, you know, like I wasn't, and I'd been, I'd fought my dad ruthlessly before over a restaurant. So it wasn't like I wasn't used to that either. But this one was just completely fucking different. Like it tormented me. I had this notion in my head. Like I always have this notion of like 
can't we all get along? Can it all just work? Um, that's kind of been my role, I guess. It's like the fixer. I kind of played that role in between him and my partner when it blew up, like ultimately, and it didn't work. You know, I was kind of stuck in a fucked up emotional spot, you know? And from that point, it just kind of became a different kind of story. So a lot of that stuff we had to leave out. And a lot of that stuff, like, you know, hopefully, Alex, maybe we'll touch on it again. Who knows? Josh and I always brainstorm about different story ideas. So, we'll, you know, we'll see what the next thing we do is. Sometimes we might need a breather. We need a comedy. This kind of uh, intense catharsis. And and sometimes we want to go right back in and dig some more ore out of, uh, out of Josh's soul. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you guys understand where I'm coming from here. But as a TV guy who's created several TV shows, I saw a father-son sitcom. You had to find an old bald guy and a young bald guy that really get together and are able to be compatible. That'd be funny. Just two bald guys going at it is actually kind of funny. We can call it Coneheads Part 2, dude. (laughs) (laughs) See, me and my dad have very nice shaped bald heads. That's one thing, you know. You're both good-looking bald dudes, and I see that as straight man. People who are interested in the legalization of marijuana in Seattle and also interested in kind of seeing a 2013 version of Josh and his dad. There's that documentary that was on Netflix. Now it's on YouTube. You can watch for free called Evergreen, the road to legalization. And you'll see Josh Berman and his dad interviewed in that part of the business partner. Ramel. Yeah. Check that out. I mean, it was, Oh, I didn't know that. Also their partner in the story who's named Lamar in the story is also in that documentary being interviewed as well as part of this whole legalization movement. So their involvement in this is all very well documented. To see this Charbok Deepta cartoon version of these guys going through it is actually a lot of fun. I love that. It really is. And let me ask you, Bill, what did you think about the physical visualization of Joey Berkowitz's aging as you were reading it? Like his face aging over time. Honestly, it was so subtle, I didn't notice it. Until my second reading. He hit it out of the park on this. I'm a comic artist as well as writer. I read this in such a way that I just kept thinking, man, this guy really thought things through. You know, Josh and I had a lot of back and forth with him. Uh But there are certain little just visual cues I wanted in there. And it was like, when does he start losing his hair? We had that carefully placed right after his first drug bust. And you see him driving, you see the back of his head, and now there's a bald patch. My dad was probably more bald than him at at that point when he was like 19. So, you know, it's funny to me because thankfully this is all my real hair. But you got real good hair and it's not gray either. Good for you. So I wanted to throw some gradual little changes in. Josh wanted real sudden ones, and it worked really well because when he comes back from Europe and boom, hippie mode, like it hits you in the face in such a fun, cool way. Oh, yeah. Uh, Like the early Catskills, New York version of him versus the late 60s, Berkeley version. Right. Uh, Woodstock's over, Altamont's over, the hippie movement's done, uh, Janis Joplin's dead, Jimi Hendrix's dead. All right, now it's like the early 70s. Let's go gritty. And that's when Josh is like, dude, let's literally put him in like a Fidel Castro uniform for this part. That's what he, but that's like, if you look at pictures from that era, he looks like Fidel Castro. And he dressed like that too. (laughs) Like that was the look, you know, those crazy, like communist dogs. It was that time I have this coat that everyone says, that looks like something Chairman Mao would have worn. (laughs) And once they said that, I was a little bit more like worried or cautious to wear it because I'm like, if I'm if I'm among right wing people, they're gonna totally say, "Oh, Chairman Mao." <laughs> but if I'm among left wing people, which are my people more or less, I would get oh, a pat on the back. So <laughs> no, I appreciate that. That's really funny, actually, to me. That's awesome. So you you actually kind of related to some of the visual choices in that you were alive during some of that stuff, dude. I was alive through everything from '63 on, sadly. No, I related so much of it. I have to give you guys more kudos. Just really love this graphic novel. I love the way you portrayed the different eras. And you did it without hitting people over the head with it. Like, I'm going to tell you a story about a man named... I mean, you didn't, like, say it's this year, this year, this year. It was 
told through Josh's dad's eyes for the most part. And I thought that was beautiful. I don't know. It really rang a bell for me. I loved it. That's good because when you do something like this and you have no experience, like, or very little experience, you never really know what you have at all. Right. We really edited it down to the, to the last minute, you know, kept pouring over it and over and over it again and again. And, you know, and then you birth it into the world and you just never really know what you got. And so, so far it's been cool because I mean, I've only really heard good things. The cannabis community has responded really well. And this is a community that does love comic books, but you do have to kind of like drive it in there. And I spent a lot of years running an independent music label and, you know, I ran an independent magazine and I know how long things take. Like I'm used to things taking, like when you have things indie, it takes a year right, for things to even start really heating up sometimes. This used to have to push their singles for three years when you're indie before it blows up. Like it's just a different time frame. So for me, I'm used to, as far as the release stuff goes, I'm used to like the endurance release. And I'm, you know, I've been a small business owner my whole life and I'm kind of used to like, all right, let's get it out there and let's just like start building the neural network and allowing the communication to begin and do a little marketing. And for Alex, it's been great because like his technical prowess is extremely high. His knowledge of like the new school marketing platforms is pretty sophisticated. I'm a classic marketing. I used to get hired to market for people. So I have like a good campaign knowledge of how you like campaigns, beginning, middle, end, how you do your buys, all that stuff. But I'm rusty because I don't really do that anymore. Like, you know, I'm in a marketing, you don't do it constantly. You lose fast. No, you lose it. Yeah. It's been good because I understand campaign management, but Alex understands the current platforms better than me. I'm a visual storyteller. I like to write too, but more I'm like a more of a visual storyteller. But Alex actually understands how to use the technology to tell the stories. It's been cool because like we've been friends and we've done things together, but nothing like this. It's just been good to know that we can kind of produce something that gets good feedback. Like that's a good feeling. It's just good to know that people care. Have you gotten any negative feedback from this? My mom, maybe? Well, your mom. (laughs) Well, yeah, because we're showing very uncomfortable things about their marriage in this. Yeah, that caused a little stir. And they're obviously divorced now, but not really. She was proud of it because from an artistic standpoint, she recognized just the amount of work. We've meticulously poured over every panel in our own way. We both had our own lens looking at it. That's right. Like I'm looking at everything as how the colors match. How's the background? Is the background correct? Is is this panel maxing? Like that's how my eye works. Like, you know, and so that lot, and then of course, like we're both working on the writing uh, from different, different styles, you know, I'm getting it like in in different directions too. And there's like an overall, like just structural narrative that had to make sense. Everything has to lead to the next thing in a way where, like you said, you're not getting browbeaten by year numbers, right? That you're smoothly conveying what you got to say. And Josh and I would have debates literally on random dialogue balloons. It still has to have this information in it. We really have about this amount of space. And then Josh would be like, well, why don't we say it like this? I'd be like, okay, that's better. But we kind of need to do a little twist to kind of keep it this size. All right, then we go back and forth. All right, we got it. You know, and we definitely brought different skills to this thing, which was really cool about it. You know, I'm glad I read all the comics I have in my life to really be able to process it into this format in a way that it accomplished what it was set out to do. It also allowed both of us to work on certain writing things that we're not necessarily initially good at, but I think we're better now at because we would spot each other's stuff. We're not scared to push on each other. So like he would see the little inconsistent things I would do consistently and vice versa. And so we were able to kind of like just push each other's styles. And I feel like now we could do, do it even more. There's certain things where you don't want to be too informational, like a computer, but you don't want to be so slang where people don't right. know what you're saying. You got to cut that in the middle, but still, it still has to pop. But this is the whole Stanley Jack Kirby thing. It really taught you what Stan brought to it. Those dialogue balloons, they matter. But also just visually, just looking at it and does it register? You know, Stan had that sense as an editor, like when you actually make one, you do, I think, value those kind of judgments that were made in Marvel. Absolutely. No, you do. I'm a Stan lover, not a basher. So I'm going to say that up front, but Stan was a huge influence on me. Stan hired me for Stanley.net and right before 
the government shut them down because the guys that were running it were, you know, crooked as you know what. And I've known Stan since I was 14. So it was hard for me not to ever see him as this kindly uncle. But I do know he turned a blind eye to many things that were not helpful to artists. Does that make me sad? Of course it does. I'm always a lover of the executive. The music world is the exact same way. We got all these music execs who have like the worst reputations. And yet none of it could have happened without them because someone has to get out there. Right. Stick your neck all the way out. Make these very difficult. To, someone has to make the sausage, man. And I'm, look, I don't know anything about Stanley's history versus you guys. So I'm not taking, I don't have no dog in that race. Let's say Jack Kirby did 80% of that work. And then Stan Lee does 20% of that work. But that 20% is basically what made it register with everybody. Right. From, from good to great, as they say. Same thing with Steve Jobs. You know, they say the same thing about him. Like, what does Steve Jobs actually do? I'm like, well, what didn't he do? Yeah. Like, you know, exactly. Someone has to maestro the thing together, you know? I asked Jack outright, I go, are you mad at Stan? He goes, nobody stays mad at Stan. He goes, I'm disappointed. And you know what? Disappointed is like, that's way worse than being mad at somebody. To me, I appreciate Steve Ditko a lot, too. In you guys' case, you both had this strong sense your artist got paid a decent wage and you created something that honestly, I think it's a tale for the ages. And I hope upon hope I can help you guys in some way, bring it to TV or movies, because honestly, it's one of the best properties I've ever read. And I think it deserves it in lieu of what you see out there now on Netflix, Hulu, you know, any streaming service, you have to have, these kind of series story that you guys wove and made you know you guys are very similar but you're also very different sure so this would not have been the same vehicle if you guys both hadn't told the story this is a story that people really need to hear it's kind of like one flew over the cuckoo's nest in the mid-70s It's an ugly truth that had ugly parts, psychiatry system and people going to hospitals. Yet it's such a beautiful story, I think. Thank you. That's really great. I want everybody to go buy a copy of this because it's wonderful. Your dad is a, he's a character. (laughs) He's definitely a character. (laughs) Well, my dad was too, you know, my dad. and, And so that's why I think of all dads as characters, because I think that's who we build in our minds. Yeah. You know, as who our dads were, this is a book. All of you guys need to kind of go to Amazon and pick up because it's going to make you happy. It's going to make you sad and it's going to make you pissed off all at the same time. I think you guys knew exactly what you were doing. And I think it took a while to make this happen. Right, Alex? Two years. Almost to the day. Yeah, it was around like New Year's or, or around Christmas that we started all this. I love that so much. Because two years is not a bad time to come up with a magnum opus like this. It was COVID. We spent a lot of time on it during COVID. And, and in a way, it, we made a baby together, Josh. Hash man, hash baby. Hash baby, hash baby. (laughs) (laughs) I raise my purple haze to you both. This is a wide-ranging story. It spans decades. It also spans Josh's life with his dad and Alex's life with Josh as his best friend. Not played out in the story, but we know this now because we're talking about it. I am the guy that, in the story, his dad is talking to. So that is yeah, me. He is in- oh, oh, yeah. oh, of course. Of course. I'm slow. That just dawned on me right now. But <laughs> <laughs> no one says Bill Field is quick. I think it's something that will stand the test of time. You know, some people would probably guffaw at me comparing it to Mouse. But it's very similar to me because it's such an important story at such an important time of our country's evolution towards decriminalization of pot, decriminalization of mind of the weed. I think this is going to do a service to a lot of people in a lot of weird ways. I want to have one more word from both of you and we'll do a hard out. But Josh, tell me in a nutshell what this project has meant to you. I mean, you've been pretty clear about it, but 
What does it mean to you now that you're a few months out from publication? How do you feel about it being on the stands, people seeing it and their reaction? Does it make you feel like you made the right decision? I never knew exactly what I wanted to be. All my friends ended up being doctors or professionals, and I never really did that. And I always knew I wasn't going to do that. And I think it, uh, it's more obvious now. But like when I was in college, I didn't know why I didn't want to be anything. Now, after learning about my dad's tale, it makes more sense. And so for me, the only thing I knew was that I had to do something really fucking cool and I had to tell about it. You know, like I knew that from a relatively young age. I mean, I'm still right in the middle of a lot of wild shit, but it almost feels like maybe I'm past the, that kind of chaos and now I could talk about it. And now it can be cathartic and actually get it to a point where the healing can happen. The fact that I've been able to do this with Alex, we've been best friends and mentors to each other in these really unique ways. And the fact that I could do that makes me know that like it was all just kind of meant to be this way. And it comes across. It comes across. And I, I, I can't tell you that enough. Alex, what are your thoughts, buddy? It's a whole different genre than anything else that I usually mess with. Graphic novel I did before, Journey to Mexico. Which was wonderful, by the way. I enjoyed it so much. Yeah, no, no, no. Thanks. It's a superhero set in real life historical events in the 1830s in Mexico. It's a whole nother thing. So when Josh was like, hey, look, you know, what you're doing with this, why don't you do that with the weed world and me and my dad and all that? And, you know, you know, it's going to be a lot of work. Where were y'all when that happened? That was in Mexico. I brought copies of the graphic novel with me there. Oh, oh. When we were hanging out with his dad on the beach. When you started gelling everything with dad? Right. Oh, that's awesome. That was the other catalyst was the fact that he had this beautifully produced graphic novel. Like, hey, look what I did. And we're all like, holy shit, this is super professional. And I was looking for a platform and it was like, well, Jesus, you know. And Scott Robinson edited me on it. And it was nice to have that collaboration. But this was different. This was like, actually, I'm going to create something with someone else. You have to let go of certain things of control and then also hold on to other things of control so it gets done. I take on a challenge of, can I make this real? I always want to make something real. An idea, let's make it real. For me, it was the process of, can I make this real? So I, I took it on as a challenge and can I now apply it to this history? As a comics historian, you're using comics to tell history. That's a different thing. Right. I didn't expect to grow as much from it because I think Josh and I were working on it together and he has kind of the same intensity about stuff as me. I think we both surprised each other with how we both grew creatively because we got into each other's heads. It was late at night. It's like three in the morning. We're just digging into each other's heads on this and fun honing of skills. But it was also a real just amazing creative outlet because of the vice world. We can go to places that you really won't really go. Right. It appeals to me, you know, that I've gotten compliments of me and you, Bill, when we joke around and we start saying jokes that are a little bit in between the lines, and there's innuendo. Right. So it was interesting to be able to go there on a professional level in this story. But you told both sides and you told the naughty side without being gratuitous or anything but faithful to the story. Right. And that's what I absolutely love about it. Yeah, thanks. And that was the interesting thing is like vice a professional form of it, but then also keep it punchy. Right. Where you want to read it still, being able to tell another historical thing advanced creatively as a storyteller with Josh. Absolutely. Like we both, I think, just move forward in that way. It goes back to other things that we used to creatively do together in college, but the comic version. Did you draw upon any other comics or anything for this? Do you? Is there anything that stands out in your mind that you used as a graphic conduit or milestone that you drew from? to create this you're talking about like other comics i've read or other movies or something like that yeah like josh was talking about the forrest gump analogy throughout of it i always thought of it as like the marijuana version of the of the movie blow with johnny depp in a way i agree with both of those yeah we we wanted the underground thing. We didn't try to mimic anything, but after it was already done, you know, Tom Yates, he comes over to the house sometimes during the, the comic gatherings and he looked at it. He's like, dude, this reminds me of Spain Rodriguez's Trash Man. Are you kidding me? That, no, no, that's it. Didn't I say that earlier? I hope I did. And I was like, Trash Man. And I knew Spain Rodriguez because I've seen some video clips of him. 
but I didn't know about Trash Man. And then I looked it up. I'm like, and I sent a picture to Josh. I'm like, look at this. Dude. No, I know. Trash Man. Like we bit him or something. I felt like you were channeling. Like we him. accidentally, like creatively did something somewhat similar visually. I just thought that was interesting. And I sent a picture. I'm like, dude, I just found out about Trash Man. And this was what after Hashman was already published. Oh, I didn't even think about them sounding alike. We didn't draw from it, but it was cool to see that, that there was a creative vein that we were drawing from there. It's funny because I didn't even get the trash hash, the onomatopoeia of it until you said that right now. As the comic historian, I, I probably am in my sleep. It just came to me and it made me realize, oh my gosh, this is so classic. And as Spain's work was, it drew me into the story more. It made me more happy at the end of it. It's not like a happy, you know, flowers and candy kind of ending. You think after you read it. And that's what you guys wanted, I hope. Realism. Yeah, realism. But you didn't candy coat it. I love that it was still fun. I wanted to read page after page after page. And when it was done, I wanted more. And any comic fan will tell you that's the signature of a wonderful product. So you guys did great. Thank you. At this point, folks, you know, we're done. I hate to say that because it's been a wonderful night with two of my favorite people. And I have to thank Josh. Josh, thank you, buddy. Thank you. It's been great reconnecting with you and having a wonderful discussion of this and oratory discourse, as it were. And Alex, Alex is one of my best friends, too, folks. I'm, I'm going to have to have a fight with Josh after this as to, hey. you know. But I want to tell you guys, this has been phenomenal. And I hope everybody rush out and buy this graphic novel because Hashman is the real deal. It's not a fako. It's not someone trying to make something out of something that wasn't there. But guys, Alex, Josh, I want to thank you for joining me tonight. And I'm, I'm glad we were able to uh, express these things and tell everybody about this great graphic novel. I hope to see more from you guys together in the future. Thank you, Bill. It's been awesome, man. From Billfield. Former and current, as at least tonight, host of the Comic Book Historian podcast, thank you for sharing your story and the evolution of this to all of us. Mm-hmm.